Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. I hope you guys have had a, a good start to your uh, new year. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to John chapter 1? We're going to be in John 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have people coming down uh, the aisles right now who'd love to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift. But we are going to be in the Bible all morning. So just raise your hand and we'll get that to you. And uh, I don't know if you were here last week or not, but we are kicking off a series where we're really going to spend the next three to four months um, diving into the Gospel of John and, and getting a close look at Jesus. And as a pastor, there is nothing more fun to do than to preach on Jesus. I'm so excited for this series. It's going to be such a good thing for our hearts and for our church. And if you remember, John, he's not an historian. He's not a doctor. He's not trying to put everything together sequentially. John was Jesus' best friend. And what I love about the book of John is John has one purpose. He's just like, man, I want you to see how amazing Jesus is. And that's really going to be the goal of our time together every day uh, this spring is we're just going to get a different and um, more beautiful look at Jesus. And and I want to start our time together off with a question. Here's what I want us to think of. If you're taking notes, this is the opening question. It's this. What defines greatness? How do we define greatness? Um, I would say that as Americans, um, but as people in general, we're obsessed with the idea of greatness. We want to be great. We want to know who the greatest is. Um, We actually even have a phrase for greatness. The greatest of all time is called the GOAT, right? And this is most acutely felt in sports, I think, but like there's this constant debate, who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? Like there's been a 15-year-long debate in the NBA, is it LeBron or is it Michael Jordan, right? Who's, who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? If you followed the World Cup at all over this past winter, it was, is it Ronaldo or is it Messi? Who's the GOAT? And can we just agree on one thing? I don't know what side you fall on, but can we at least agree that the term GOAT is really, really stupid? Like, it's so dumb. Nobody wants to be called a goat. And why are we honoring greatness with a really stupid name? Like, if I could kill one phrase in our culture, it might be that. Do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor and just say, so dumb. Right? It's so dumb. But, man, we have a nickname for greatest because we're obsessed with it. Well, who's the greatest athlete? What's the greatest city? Which is the greatest country? Like we use it for political slogans and campaigns. Make America great again. Who has the greatest food? Where are the greatest doctors? Who is the greatest worker or parents? Or who, you know, who is great? But my question is, is what makes someone great? What defines greatness? Is it just God-given talent? Are you just great because you've been gifted by God and you're lucky? I, uh, my son Judah, his birthday is on New Year's Eve. And uh, so this past year for his birthday, we took him and Bo and Mary and I, we went to Chicago for a couple days, and I took the boys to a Bulls game. 
and uh, they just had the greatest time. They had a blast. Well, Judah's older brother, Bo, my older son, he's nine, and, and he is just obsessed with sports. He lives and breathes sports. When I went to church this morning, he was already up on our couch watching the highlights of the Bulls game because it was up too late for him last night. That's just how he is. Well, after going to a live game, the next morning, he just kind of casually said, hey, dad, when I'm in the NBA someday, right, like it's a foregone conclusion, like his, he's got it planned out. And I was like, hey, son, I love you, but you need to understand that the shortest player on the basketball court last night is six inches taller than your daddy, right? Like there is a talent level and a God-gifted ability that those men have that is not in our gene pool. I don't care how many free throws you shoot, bro. It's probably not happening. I don't mean to crush your dreams, but, but is that what makes greatness? Is it just, you got to be lucky, you got to be talented, or, or is it the combination of talent plus work ethic? I think this is what we as Americans subscribe to. Like, if you want to go from good to great, it's all about your willingness to grind, to put in the tough miles, to put in the hours. Is it just about how bad you want it and how hard you work? In order to be great, do you have to come over, do you have to overcome a significant obstacle? Right? Can you be Batman if there is no Joker? Right? If everything's easy, can you really be great? Is it all just about opportunity? Do you have to be lucky? Is it just the right person at the right time getting the right platform? Right? There's entire books written about the argument that there actually a lot of people are very, very talented. A lot of it comes down to when you were born, opportunity, what was going on, what makes someone great? And the reason I ask this is because, you know, Jesus actually enters into this discussion. Do you know that Jesus cared about greatness? And in fact, he tells his disciples who the greatest person ever was. If you look at Matthew eleven eleven, you don't need to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Here's what he says. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus says, hey, the greatest man to ever live is John. And that's an astonishing statement because think of all of the heroes of the Old Testament. He, he's like uh, David who defeated Goliath, not as great as John. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, not as great as John. Moses, the greatest prophet in the history of Israel, not as great as John. Joshua, who defeated the Canaanites and secured the promised land, won great battles, not as great as John. And I say that because in John 1, we're introduced to this man, John the Baptist. And what I want to do today is I want to look at why does Jesus call him the greatest man to ever live? What is the greatness that Jesus saw in John? So look at verse 19. We're going to start there. It says this. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. They asked, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So here's the first thing that makes John great. He has absolute clarity of purpose, right? In, in John 1, it says that he's out doing ministry and, and people are asking, who are you? They can't figure him out. And, and John is very, very sure about who he is. He has absolute clarity of purpose. And to better understand this, there's a couple things you need to know about John. Did you know that John was a miracle child? 
Do you know that John should have never had been born? Um, John's parents, he, he was born to a, a priest named Zacharias and his wife, uh, his wife's name, I want to get this right, is Elizabeth. You can read about this in Luke 1. And Zacharias was a leader in Israel, but he and his wife were barren. They couldn't have kids. And when Zacharias was really, really old, he, he got chosen to go into a special part of the temple to, to do a sacrifice or a sacrament. And when he went into that part of the temple, he, he was met with Gabriel, the high priest angel of the Lord. Like this is God's messenger in the angelic realm and Gabriel's there and he's like, hey, I want you to know, Zacharias, God has shown his favor on you and you and your wife are going to conceive a son. And do you know what Zacharias said? He said, I don't believe you. Isn't that crazy? Like imagine having an angel show up to you in the temple and say, hey, this thing that you've wanted so bad, I'm going to give to you. And Zacharias is like, no, it's not going to happen. We've tried too hard. Don't get my hopes up. This has been too painful. Like we've done everything we can. We've been faithful. God has not blessed us with a child. It's not going to happen, you angel person. Like what a wild thing to say. And so guess what Gabriel does? He's like, great. Because you doubted the messenger of the Lord, I I'm going to make you mute. And you're not going to speak until this son is born. And I just know some of you ladies right now are like, man, that'd be so nice, right? Like I've been praying to the Lord for this type of blessing in my life. That's mean. Stop it. But that's what happens. Zacharias is made mute and he can't speak, but God keeps his promise and they conceive a son and he's born. And this miraculous thing happens that Zacharias, it says it's, he's filled with the spirit. The Lord like, gives him back his speech and he makes this prophecy over his son. And, and he says that John is going to be a servant of the most high God. And they dedicate John to temple service. They give him back to the Lord because they're so thankful for what God has done. So imagine being John growing up being like, you're a miracle. You shouldn't be alive. But then there's this prophecy that your own father gave to you that you were going to be special. Um, here's the other thing you need to know about John. Um, John was extremely gifted. He was extremely talented, right? John does his ministry not in Jerusalem, not in a city or in a town square or where there's a lot of people, but he chooses to go out to the wilderness. And here's what's amazing. It says that people are flocking out to the wilderness to hear John teach. They are walking days to go listen to John the Baptist, right? Like, look at me. Let's be straight. Most of us here won't drive 40 minutes to go to church because it's too inconvenient, right? So here's what I'm saying. The fact that people were walking by foot out into the wilderness for days to hear John means he was really, really talented. He was gifted. I would even say he was a rock star. So, so not only is he special in his birth and in this prophecy around him, he's extremely talented, so much so that the religious leaders send people out to figure out, like, why do you have this following? What's so special about you? Who are you? And everyone's confused about who John is, but John isn't confused. Not at all. Look at verse 20. It says, he confessed and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, and they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not. And then, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So the religious leaders come to him. They're like, are you the Messiah? He's like, no. Are you Elijah? He's like, no. He's like, are you Moses, the prophet? He's like, no. Okay, there's no more bigger compliment you could be given back in that day than to be confused with those three guys. 
Like, that's how gifted he is. That's how talented he is. That's how powerful his ministry is. They think he's Elijah brought back from the dead. Everyone's confused about John, but John is not confused. He has exact clarity of purpose. He's like, I'm just the one preparing the way for the one who is to come. Can I tell you the truth, church? If you don't know what your purpose is, if your life lacks purpose, things get dark really, really quickly, don't they? Um, I was hanging out with one of our college students over the winter break. He was back from Chicago. His name's Aiden. He goes to Moody. He interned with us last summer, and he was hanging out in the office. And I was just asking about how school was going in his classes. And he said, yeah, one of his classes, they made him do an assignment where he had to go talk to uh, uh, someone with a different worldview who didn't believe the Bible, who didn't believe in Jesus, and, and just ask them questions like, what's the purpose of your life? What are you living for? Get their perspective. So like any smart college boy did, he and his friend, they went to another college campus in the city that was secular, and they found a group of girls. And I'm like, yeah, of course you did. What a, what a, what a smart thing to do. And uh, he starts talking to this girl, and he's like, you know, do you believe in the Bible? She's like, no, I'm an atheist. Um, okay, so you don't know who Jesus is? No, I don't. And then he's like, hey, why do you do what you do? What's the purpose of your life? And her answer was very, very interesting. She goes, I wake up every day hoping to find enough joy and happiness in that day to make me not want to commit suicide that night. Every day is a race to find enough happiness to, in my mind, make it worth it to live one more day. Now, is that a sustainable way to live? No, but that, that's because the, there's no hope, there's no purpose. We'll get back to this idea in a moment. Here's the second thing that makes John great. It's this. Um, it's John had a countercultural boldness. There was a countercultural boldness about John. Look at verse 25. Now, this is the religious leaders asking him what's going on, trying to figure him out. They, they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, and John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John in his ministry, he's baptizing people and the religious leaders are like, why are you doing that? And that's actually a very smart question because in the Old Testament, Jews never got baptized. They didn't need to get baptized because they were God's people. They were already under the covenant of God. Baptism in the Old Testament was for Gentiles who wanted to convert to the Jewish faith. So if you weren't born a Jew but wanted to follow Yahweh and convert to the Jewish faith, you would have to get baptized. And baptism was very much of like a, hey, you're not us, you're not God's people, and you need to clean yourself from your Gentileness in order to be accepted into God's family. All right, what John's doing is different. He's doing a baptism of repentance, and he's baptizing Jews. And what he's saying is, is he's saying, no, salvation comes through repentance and faith in the Messiah. You need to deal with your own heart and your own sin. Stop putting your hope in your nationality or who your parents are or what country you belong to. It's not about who your family is. It's about you individually being right before God. This was very countercultural. Here's the best way I can explain it. I have a mirror here, all right? And, and, and baptism in the Old Testament, it was very much a mirror that the Jews were shining back at the Gentiles. I know this is getting in your eyes. Sorry about that. I'll keep trying to move it a little bit. Um, I kind of like it. I can do it to certain people on purpose. Um, 
But this is what the Jews were saying. They're saying, you're the problem. You're not like us. You're not part of God's family. You need to get yourself right. You're the issue. You're the one messed up. All right, and here's what John's doing. John's turning the mirror back on the Jews. He's saying, no, no, no. Relationship with God comes through humility and repentance and, and, and obedience. And we need to deal with the sin in our own life in church. One of the things I love about Christianity is it always turns the mirror back towards us, doesn't it? Because here's the truth. We like to shine the mirror at others, don't we? We like to focus on what's screwed up with everyone else. We, we do this all the time, right? Like we love to f- put the mirror on politics and on Washington. It's like, man, things are screwed up in Washington. It took them like 300 tries to figure out who the speaker of the house is going to be. What a disaster, Right? We love to shine the mirror on culture. Look how dark and hopeless and screwed up everything is. You know who else we love to shine the mirror on? People in our lives that we know. Right? We just hung out with family over the holidays. How much time was spent together as a family shining a mirror on the people in our lives that aren't doing well or are in bad shape or who drive us crazy? When are they going to get it together? When are they going to learn? When are they going to get responsible? When are they going to change? Right? When people are in crisis, we love to shine the mirror on them and run to gossip and talk about what's going on. Right? What the gospel does is it shines it back on us. What do I need to own? Where do I need to repent? Who do I need to seek forgiveness from? And, um, you know, I get asked occasionally, hey, Cal, are you worried about what America's going to be like as your kids grow up? Are you worried about the next generation as we see what's happening in our culture? Does that concern you? Here's the lane I want to live in, if I could be really, really honest. My primary concern is I want myself to be a genuine follower of Jesus. I want to have a real, alive, passionate walk with him. I want to know him. I want to be in his presence. I want to be used by him. My second concern is I want my family, my wife and kids, I want to shepherd them towards the Lord. I want them to genuinely love Jesus. I want them to know him. I want them to know his spirit. And then my third concern is this church. I want the marriages in our church to be a light in our community. I want the hearts in our church to be honest and transparent and open, and I don't want us to make a mockery uh, of the faith we ascribe to with how we live. Listen, I can't focus on the big things that are outside of my control. I I, I want the mirror to be focused on us and, and say, man, is my walk with the Lord genuine, and am I pursuing him in a way that honors him? That's what John is doing, and this wasn't happening in the Jewish culture. You know, it's funny, I uh, spent a lot of time thinking about this idea of being countercultural. And, and you know, people try to be countercultural all the time. Um, this might date me a little bit, but when I was in high school, I went to Grand Haven High School for a bit, and, and the countercultural group at Grand Haven High School when I went was the goth movement. It was the goth kids. Throw the next slide up there. Right, did any of you remember this? Like, this were, these were the goth kids. And, uh, you know, they would have the, the makeup that would make their skin pale white. They'd have the dark makeup around their eyes or their lips. They'd wear, like, mesh netting, and they'd have dark hair. And they were like the ones that were like, we're different than everyone. Right? We're the freaks. We're, we're the countercultural ones. Like, like, look how different we are. And, and here's what kind of makes me laugh about that movement. Right? They looked countercultural. But if you really kind of scratch any deeper than just the surface, they weren't countercultural at all. Their lives were ex- exactly the same as every other high school student. Guess what they did? They went to school, they hung out with their friends, and they were really into music, right? 
Guess what every other kid at high school was? They went to school, they hung out with their friends, and they were really into music. Now, the music might have been a little bit different. The, the friend groups were different, but all high schoolers were doing the exact same thing. So this countercultural movement was just surface level, just in how they look. Church, I, I say this because Christianity is countercultural, but it's not a surface level countercultural. It's in how we live. It's in how our lives are ordered. Here's what I'm trying to say very, very bluntly. If you have a relationship with Jesus that is alive and impactful, other people in your life should look at you like you're weird sometimes. That's okay. And actually that's a good thing. People should look at your life and be like, wow, um, you really pray like you believe it. Like most people just pray when there's a crisis that they can't control. You pray when things are good. You ask for wisdom and help when things are normal. Most people don't do that. Like you believe in the power of prayer in a way that's different. You have a kindness and a hope and a joy that, that, that's separate from your circumstances. Even when you're having a bad day at work, you still love people well, and you're quick to forgive, and you're humble, and you ask for forgiveness when you hurt people. You don't try to justify it and, and hide it. You don't self-promote, but you live with integrity, and your priorities look different than other people's. John's ministry was countercultural. He was turning the mirror back on the Jewish people, and I would argue a genuine faith demands that in our lives as well. All right, look at verse 29. I'm going to read from verses 29 through 42. Hang with me. Here's what it says. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness... I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. And then that next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by. And again, he said, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to him, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came where he was and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two that heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. All right, so can I have your permission for something? Can I go on a bit of a rabbit trail for a second? Is that okay? This has nothing to do with our notes. This has nothing to do with John the Baptist. But Jesus does something so cool here. I, I, I don't want you to miss it. Jesus enters the scene, and John's like, there he is. There's the Messiah. He's the one. And a couple of the people who've been hanging out with John the Baptist, they start hanging out with Jesus, and they follow him. And one of the men, his name is Nathaniel. He's like, hey, Jesus, can we hang out? Jesus is like, yeah, sure, totally. And Nathaniel goes and gets his brother named Simon. And Jesus meets Simon, 
And, and, and he's like, hey, are you Simon, son of John? And Simon's like, yeah, that's me. And Jesus goes, I'm going to call you Peter. He changes his name. Now, help me, you guys should know this if you've been around church very long. In the Hebrew, what does the name Peter stand for? What's its meaning? Just say it out loud. It means rock. So in the Hebrew, names were significant, and it, gave, it spoke to your character. So Jesus meets Simon. He never meets him before, but he says, I'm going to call you rock. Now, what does rock symbolize? It symbolizes strength. It symbolizes reliability. It symbolizes you can trust this thing. Now, now here's the truth. If we know anything about Simon in this moment, he is everything but reliable. This doesn't describe Peter or Simon at all. In fact, out of all of the disciples, he was the quickest to say something stupid, and he was the quickest to run away when things got difficult. He was all over the place. He was an emotional roller coaster. In fact, Jesus should have named him Wind. Because there wasn't a lot of substance to him, and he was easily blown around. But that's not what Jesus calls him. He says, you are strong, you're reliable, you're stable, and you're trustworthy. You know why Jesus calls him rock? Because Jesus doesn't just see him for who he is. He sees him through the lens of what Peter will become through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, think of the implications of that. Like, you know what that means? Like, we think of our identity in Christ. We talk as Christians a lot. It's important to have an identity in Christ. And I think sometimes we only get half of it right. We think of our identity in Christ as what Jesus has done for us. So when I think of my identity, it's like, man, I'm saved because Jesus saved me. I'm loved because God loves me because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm adopted because Jesus brought me into his family. Our identity is all things that Jesus has done. And listen, that is good and that is right and that is true. But there's another part of your and I's identity that's not just what Jesus has done for us, but it's who we are becoming through the power of his spirit. So Jesus can look at Francesca. And he can be like, you are kind and you're patient and you're trustworthy and you're steadfast and you're assured. And it's like, man, maybe in the moment, Francesca doesn't feel like any of those things. Like I know so often, man, I feel like a failure and I'm like, man, there's so much work to be done and I'm so far from the finished product. But what Jesus shows us in this is he doesn't view me through the lens of where I still need to grow. He views me through the lens of, man, my spirit is going to accomplish these things in your life. I'm not done working and I'm making you into a new creation. We are being transformed from one degree from glory to another and Jesus already sees us through that lens. And isn't Jesus just the best? Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is just the best. Like that is such a beautiful thing that has massive implications for us. All right, rabbit trail over. Let's go on. Let's keep talking about John the Baptist. The third thing that made John great, and I think this is the big one, is there is an unwavering passion to elevate Jesus. This is what John's about, and I love this, right? He tells the Pharisees, even before Jesus shows up, he's like, the one that comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He's like, you think I'm impressive? You think I'm great? You think my ministry is causing waves? Wait till the Messiah comes. He's going to change the world. And then when Jesus shows up, do you see what he does? Immediately, he's like, there he is. 
He's the one. There's the Messiah, the one that takes away the sin of the world. And he's like, listen to him, follow him. His own disciples leave John to go follow Jesus. Most biblical commentators or scholars believe that Jesus' best friend John was first a disciple of John the Baptist. But there's no ego with John the Baptist. He's like, no, go follow Jesus. He's the one. My work here is done. I came to elevate Jesus. And now that he's here, he is the one that should be magnified. In Colossians 1, Paul writes this about Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen to this. All things were created through him and for him. Here's what Paul's saying. Everything exists for the magnification and glory of Jesus. And Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man to ever live because John got this most correctly. It was all about elevating Jesus. That was his purpose. That was his goal. That's what he gave his life to. Do me a favor. Turn over just two chapters in the book of John to John 3. I think the best picture or description of John's heart is found in John 3.30 when John the Baptist is talking about Jesus to his disciples. Look what he says. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Like, Like, here's the truth. If you don't have a life verse yet, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, I just gave you yours, right? Like, what an incredibly powerful phrase. John's heart was summed up as, man, it's about Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. So church, can I shine the mirror again for a second? Can we turn it on ourselves? Here's what I want to ask you right now. For a second, if you can, forget that you're in a room full of people. Forget you're at church. God's here. He sees. His presence is with us. You before the Lord right now, can you honestly say that that's true in your life? If you were to stand before the Lord, could you with honesty say, man, my heart's desire is that your name and renown would increase and mine would decrease. Is that true of us? I think it's a question we need to wrestle with. Church, look at me. I am fully convinced that every spiritual failure in our life happens when we get this equation backwards. Right? Why do we sin? Because we want to make our lives about us. So we're unwilling to wait on God's timing. We do what we want, even though we know it violates God's law. Right? We get an outsized view of ourselves. We must increase. And because of that, God decreases in our hearts. Why are we so often discontent? Because we fail to trust that God is in control and he has us where he has us for a reason. But in our minds, no, it's got to be about us and what makes me more comfortable, what makes my life easier. And I don't care what God's trying to accomplish in my heart. I want what I want. We are increasing. We're trying to make God decrease. Right? Why are we so often not dependent on prayer? Um, Can I ask you this really quick? How many of you guys followed the story on uh, Monday Night Football with DeMar Hamlin and, and his injury? That was really, really scary, wasn't it? Um, When I watched that, I was watching the the reaction Monday night. One of the things that jumped out to me, um, there's no atheist in a foxhole. You know that, right? Like when life's on the line and there's nothing anyone can do, guess what everyone did? Everyone got on their knees and they prayed. I think our lack of prayer 
is because so often we're so comfortable and we think we're in control and we think our strength and our intelligence and our will, we can solve our issues. We're increasing, the Lord is decreasing in our hearts. Why do we not pursue the growth of knowledge of God in his word? Because we don't make time for it in our schedule. That's us increasing, that's God decreasing. Um, Why do we have such a lack of bold witness in our lives? Like, I'm not going to make you answer this, but how many of you shared your faith in Christ with someone in 2022? Why is that a muscle that's so weak in the Christian church right now? Well, I think it's because at the end of the day, when you cut through all of it, we don't want to risk our comfort or reputation for Jesus. We are increasing. The Lord is decreasing. John had this right. He must increase, and I must decrease. John fully believed and understood his life was about elevating Jesus. So here's where I want to go as we kind of get ready to wrap up. Here's a worthy resolution for our lives in 2023. Um, Let's just elevate Jesus together. Like, I'm not a complex person. I like things when when things are clear and straightforward. And, And here's what I would argue. If the equation is, is John was the greatest person to ever live... And he was because he got this the clearest and the best. He made his life about elevating Jesus. Is there anything greater that we could pursue in our lives than elevating Jesus? I don't think there is. Like, man, I want this to be in my life. I want this to be in my family's life. I want this to be in our church. I want our reputation to be, man, it is not about me. It is not about us. It is about Jesus. I want this place to be a Jesus place. So let's get really, really practical. What does it look like to elevate Jesus? How do we begin to live this out? Well, here's the first. If you're going to elevate Jesus in your life, you need to know him. Peter, the rock, Cephas, uh, in 2 Peter 3, he writes this. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. All right, I think that's a really funny line because if anyone knew what it was like to not be stable, it's Peter. So so Peter's like, hey, I've made this mistake before. If you don't want to make the same mistakes I did, listen to me. Then he says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Here's what he's saying. If we're going to grow, if we're truly going to be disciples of Jesus, part of that has to include an intellectual pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ more. We have to spend time with him. We have to learn about who he is. We have to learn what he was like, who he loves, why he loves, what his motivations are. We have to know God's word, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ to us. Now, church, hear me, please, this is so important. Don't let not knowing where to begin be an excuse to not get after this. I think when it comes to studying the Bible or studying God's word, it's easy to be like, man, that's intimidating. I I don't know where to begin, and so we just don't do anything. Um, That's why we're here. We want to help you and resource that you might know Jesus more. And, And here's a couple ways we can do that. There's a couple resources that I want to show you. Um, Throw that up on the slide if you could. 
Yeah, here are two devotionals that are really, really great if you just want to start the process of very, very practically growing in your knowledge of Jesus. The first is called New Morning Mercies. It's written by Paul Tripp. It's a 365-day devotional. And Paul Tripp, I think, is the best in our country at really connecting our heart to the heart of Christ. It's a page every day. It's a devotional. I've had this for four or five years, and I still go through it all the time. This is my favorite devotional ever. I love it. The other one is a newer one. I haven't read it yet, but it's written by Tim Keller and his wife, and it's more geared towards marriage and a husband and wife going through something together. Um, Here's what I know. I haven't read it yet, but I know it's going to be great. I'm planning on getting this and going through this with Mary. And uh, if you're looking, same thing, it's a daily devotional. Um, These materials, if you stick with it and commit to just spending the four or five minutes and reading a page of this every day, you will know Jesus more in a year from now. I promise you, you will grow in this. Um, The other thing is, is our church is here to help you. Um, We have discipleship classes, which are geared towards growing in the knowledge of Jesus. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but we're kicking off a a discipleship class on the book of Revelation, End Times, uh, in the next couple weeks. We already have 400 people signed up for it. Come be a part of it. Come join. Talk to one of the pastors. Figure out how to be a part of it. It's going to be an incredible study. We have men's Bible studies. We have women's Bible studies. Like We go to great lengths to try to grow in our knowledge of God together. It's here for you. Just be willing to ask if you need help. Here's the second thing we need to do. It's not just about knowing, but we need to worship him. We need to worship Jesus. And I use the word worship and love here a little bit interchangeably, right? Because if you love Jesus or if you worship Jesus, he becomes the central focus of your life. And here's what I mean when I say that. That means that he becomes the grid by which you view how you live your life. So my marriage, it's not just about me and what I want or even what me and Mary want together, but we live our marriage through the grid of are we glorifying and honoring Jesus? Are we elevating his name? Do I love my wife like the Bible's laid out how I love her because that glorifies and honors Jesus and how we spend our money and our time? Are we doing it in a way that that is in accordance with the word of God and how Jesus would have us do that? Is my attitude at work? It's not just about me and what I can get done. It's, man, I've got a mission to elevate Jesus in how I interact with my coworkers and how I answer emails, in my thoughts, and in my attitude, right? I want to honor him with my life. Do I love what Jesus loves? Am I engaged in biblical community? Like, can I ask you a question? What are the non-negotiables in how you spend your time? Right? Every week, we have just a certain amount of time that we can give to things, Are the things of the Lord non-negotiable, or or are they things that are just kind of slid in at the end if you have time? Am I quick to repent when I fail? Am I quick to forgive when I'm sinned against? Am I gracious? Am I putting others ahead of myself? There's this desire to be like, man, I want my life to honor Jesus because he's worthy, and it's all about him anyways. And then here's the last one. If we're going to elevate Jesus in our lives, we need to introduce him. We need to share our faith with others. And again, this is very, very simple. Look at me. If you believe that Jesus is actually alive, if he rose from the dead and he is the savior of the world and he is Lord, if we truly love other people, don't we need to tell other people about this? 
Like, if Jesus is the greatest thing to ever happen to this world, how can we not share? So, so here's what I want to encourage you. Um, do you include Jesus in your day-to-day language? Right? When people compliment you for the job you've done, it's like, man, you know what? That was a hard project. But man, I, I, I trusted the Lord and he was gracious towards me and um, he helped me. You know, praise be to him. Right? When your kid has a good soccer game, and they're like, man, your kid's great. Or are you like, you know what? Um, my son is a good kid, but um, raising kids is hard and I need the help of the Lord every day. But God is kind and he's gracious and he's helping me parent him. And I love what my son's becoming in the Lord. Like we can talk in a way where we are quick to let people know that we love Jesus and he deserves the credit in our life. And in church, can I help you with something? There's no better time or easier time to invite someone to church than when you're like, hey, we're gonna spend the next four months talking about Jesus. Come with me. Hey, you're new in the area. You moved into my neighborhood. Do you go to church? Oh, no, you don't. Well, you should. Our church, we're doing a study on Jesus. I'd love to introduce him to you. Come sit with me. This is the campus I go to. This is what time I'll save you a spot. Hey, you you wanna get connected into our community? Come join my small group. Like we hang out, we love each other, we pray for each other and and, and we want to grow in our love for Jesus together. That's what it's about. I don't think you can honestly say you desire to elevate Jesus and also be unwilling to introduce him to those in your lives. He must increase, I must decrease. What an incredible prayer for us in 2023. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for this message. I I thank you for the life of John the Baptist. God, what a powerful testimony. And and God, even in those few words, he, he must increase, but I must decrease. There is a lifetime of application and we need your help. God, I'm thankful for the people in this room who love your word and have Bibles open and genuinely seek to grow in these things. Would you empower us? Would you help us? And God, again, would you get all of the credit in the things you do in our lives? May we grow in the ability to make things less and less about us. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.